coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. And I have to have the consistency to every day attack it. Even if I'm not into it, right, I still have to fulfill that part of it. Because, you know, if you miss that day, it's going to make tomorrow harder and you have to keep on going. And just maintaining that level of consistency is so key. That's Mike Rohde, not only our guest today, but also the sponsor of this episode. Mike is offering 40% off his new book, The Sketchnote Handbook, The Illustrated Guide to Visual Note-Taking. All you have to do is go to peachpit.com, that's P-E-A-C-H, pit.com, and enter R-O-H-D-E-40, that's Rohde40, into the promo bar, you'll get that exclusive discount. So big thanks to Mike for providing that, and let's get to the episode. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 113. We spoke with Mike Rohde, visual artist, designer, and author of the Sketchnote Handbook, Workbook, and Idea Book. Mike is a designer, visualizer, teacher, and an illustrator. He works with professional teams in business and sports using visual thinking, service design, and design thinking to create innovative and effective solutions and solve problems. We talk about how Mike facilitates, engages, and teaches visual thinking and why it is so important, now more than ever. We learned when he started capturing information from meetings and conferences visually, creating the term Sketchnote. He opens up on big ideas, creativity, innovation, and how to focus on the essential bits of information for value. Mike has contributed to best-selling books, such as The $100 Startup and The Little Book of Talent in design and production. He discusses the importance of communication and collaboration on projects such as these, and really how visuals can help for those people that are constantly trying to keep on top of note-taking during any meeting. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Mike Rowdy, thanks a million for getting up so early. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's good. It's good to talk with you guys. For our listeners here across the pond, could you tell them a little bit as to where is home for you and where we're speaking to you from? So I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the home of Harley Davidson motorcycles and Miller beer, which I guess you know uh, is now. You know, not quite as popular as uh, some of the craft beers that exist, but we have quite a few of those. So it's got a long history in industrial production in beer and, and a variety of other things as well. Live on a lake near Chicago, about 90 miles north, and we have uh, cold winters and wonderful summers. Excellent. And Mike, you're a, an author, a designer, and you've come up with some great concepts that we'd like to dive into now. So could you start off with your journey about how you got into sketchnote workbooks and everything you do in that space? Yeah. So... It, it really came from pain, really, I like to say. I was a very good note taker. I could uh, sit in a meeting and I would capture lots of information. Problem that I had was I really wasn't discriminating. I wasn't doing any analysis in the meetings. I was simply capturing everything that was said or as close to it as I could as a human being and not a recorder. So in a lot of ways, I felt like a court reporter in that sense. Back in the day where it, where it was the worst, um, I had these giant notebooks and I would capture what I was hearing usually with pencil so I could erase mistakes, but I just captured everything that was coming to me. And I, like I said, I didn't really analyze anything. And it got to the point where I just, I couldn't do it anymore. It was unsustainable to work the way that I was working. And so I made a decision, this was uh, late 2006, early 2007, to to change it up, to challenge myself, to do something different. So I had a I had an event coming up early in the spring of 2007 and decided, you know what, I'm going to shift things a little bit. 
what if I took a small pocket notebook instead of the big one that I normally took? And then what if I switched from pencil to pen? And that the two of these elements sort of pushed me in a third direction. And that third direction was this. When I mix those two together, suddenly I don't have the room to write all the detail that I did. I don't have the fallback of erasing pencil because pen, when you put the ink on the page, it's going to stay there. So the combination of those two things led me to this idea of like, what if I analyze in the moment what I'm hearing and make decisions about what's important and then capture that on the page instead of having this huge compendium of detail, uh, which honestly, you know, when I would get done taking notes, I wouldn't go back into them because there was just so much. Using this new approach, I was capturing what was most relevant. I was thinking of it in the mindset almost like, what can I use when I start the day tomorrow after this uh, event that I could apply in my professional life. It was a professional conference. And so that that changed everything. Suddenly I felt like I had all this time to, to work, all this time to listen because I wasn't so busy writing. I was uh, listening to what was being said. I was analyzing it. I was thinking about it a little bit. And then in my own words, often I was capturing it on the page and I was focused really on the big ideas that were being presented by each talk. Uh, and capturing it on this little notebook. And what I found was I, I really enjoyed it. I suddenly, in a quick change, I was really having fun taking notes like I hadn't for a couple of years. Um, and then just kept pushing the boundaries, kept trying it over and over to see how would this work if I went to this event? Or what if I did it for a whole week at an event like South by Southwest Interactive? And each time I would try it, it would prove itself to be effective. And then um, additionally, when I would share this work, with uh, either the speakers or the attendees or even people who had only caught the uh, the sketch notes online, people were reacting to it. They're saying, this is really interesting. I can actually draw meaning and some value from the work you're doing. You're sort of taking this long discussion and compressing it into maybe a couple, two, three pages in a way that I can understand. So there was a real moment of um, usefulness for other people as well as for me. So it not only did it solve my problems, but it actually became really useful for other people um, as a communication, but then also as a way forward for them if they also had this challenge of hating note-taking or just feeling they needed something different that would engage them more. Love all that, Mike. And, and what about if you're going into a sporting organization or, or a business, a kind of corporate space, and you're saying, look, we're going to work on sketch noting, show of hands who feels they can draw I'm sure you have very few hands tending to pop up and people would often be a little bit intimidated or, or anxious when you're kind of dipping into that and trying to instill some confidence. How do you get those people on your side? Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. I think uh, each time I present this, and I've pre presented this hundreds of times, inside all kinds of organizations, adults, there's a quite a wide variety of adults who have stopped drawing or they just feel they can't draw. And I think some of it has to do with some of the baggage that art has around it. Um, I think art is valuable and important, but I think sometimes there's a feeling of, you know, if you can't draw to a certain level, then you just sort of give up on it and let it go. Or even a focus on schools toward uh, verbal writing and, and so forth, right? So that there's not an emphasis on this, on this uh, ability, this communication method. So one of the first things I have to address in any kind of presentation or going inside an organization, like you say, is establishing a way to draw simply. So one of the things that I created in the in the sketchnote handbook and and I teach regularly 
is this idea of the five elements, the five basic elements of drawing. And it's a square, circle, triangle, line, and a dot. And this is sort of like, these are the building blocks of drawing that I help people work through. So really, I, I'm giving them an alternative way into drawing that isn't maybe the traditional way that they may have learned in school. And it, it focuses a lot on capturing ideas because really sketch notes are more about capturing the ideas that you're thinking about, the things that you're trying to communicate. So whether it's beautiful drawing or not doesn't really matter as long as you can communicate that, that idea to someone else the way you're thinking or the thing that you're understanding way of capturing that on the page for yourself. So using these five shapes, almost like Lego pieces, you sort of put them together and you draw simply. I think that's a really, it's been a really effective way to sort of break down those barriers if people are willing to uh, step forward a little bit. And I make sure that, that this, there's a safe space where they can do that and have fun with it and then see, see success right away. I think that's a real key thing, safety and then success. So learning the concepts and then applying them immediately, uh, a really key making that making that concept accessible to someone who doesn't find drawing as their their key component of the way they work true its simplicity it seems like it could have a wide-ranging audience that would utilize it so we all take notes from back in school all the way through to our adult lives and we're always trying to learn a bit more you must try and apply this and use a broad application of this concept with many age ranges yeah. In fact, uh, the funny story uh, that I can tell you is um, I was teaching this uh, sketchnoting, like it's a mini workshop, takes about an hour, teaching it on the campus of a university to uh, a variety of people that were at, a, were at a conference. And my wife and son happened to be along and um, they came along and were sitting in the back of the room and we had some paper and pens. And so my son had taken some of the paper and pens and I just assumed he would be, you know, doodling trains or doing something. <clears throat> and I was teaching. So he was in the room. He could hear everything I was saying. When I got to the end, he actually came up and said, Dad, Dad, look. And he showed me his paper. And he was seven. He followed everything that I said. He was doing all the drawing uh, components and building with the five basic elements. He did lettering. He did all this stuff. And I was really like, wow, he, at seven, he was doing this, the same thing that I was teaching these adults. He had the capacity to follow along. Of course, his writing was not to their level, but kind of showed me that this ability to draw this simple way actually appealed to even a little seven-year-old. Certainly, it could extend up to, you know, as old of a person as you might put before you, assuming they could hear and they could write. And Mike, what's jumping out is, well, firstly, my three-year-old is going to have a go at this <laughs> later on this afternoon, Mike, and uh, we'll have to share that on social. But um, aside from that, a huge thing with graphics or uh, visual depictions of information must be the advantage that in a world where there's so much information and we're kind of nearly always overloaded cognitively, the fact that you can make those big ideas resonant and, and so simple is probably really powerful. And I'm sure from a memory retention point of view as, as well, if you're attending a conference or a workshop, you know, anything from an hour long to an hour and a half, like any Zoom calls these days, do you kind of try to boil it down to three big ideas or, or five or or does it change? I think it's really dependent on on the topic at hand, right? So some cases it can be quite a dense topic. In other cases, it could be, you know, maybe you're talking around one subject and there's maybe a group of 10 people, let's say, having a discussion around this one topic and it's all the exploration. So um, it really depends on the content coming in and the density of the content. So one of the things that I, I talk about is 
deciding what the level of drawing to writing is. Because in some cases, you just have to be real about it. So let's say you're in a board meeting uh, and there's important decisions being made, uh, right? You want to capture all the detail that you need to, to understand those decisions or the discussions. And it might change up quite a bit in an hour in a, in a board meeting, right? So in that case, maybe the sketch notes that you're using are much more, you know, handwriting, lettering, you know, writing like you normally would. And then simply the drawings are the thoughts that are entering your mind and you're pointing to some of the text and it's, you know, more dominantly uh, writing the drawing. But then in the case of something else, maybe you lean the other way and it's a little bit more visual and then you're annotating with uh, the writing. So it really can be flexible. And then the content sort of drives the, the way that you approach the work that you're doing, I would say. Excellent. I think one thing that strikes me is that you seem to have ideas or principles behind what you're, how you go about sketchnoting, how this idea concept forms. Could you elaborate on maybe the ideas and the big rocks that were behind mm-hmm. your actual process and your method of doing it? Yeah, I think, um, so the principles I would say are that listening is much more important than drawing. That would be one of the first principles I would say. And I think that's good news for people that feel like drawing is not their forte or they're not that strong at it. And I think that's why the five basic elements approach works so well, because if you can communicate the idea simply, that's really all you need to do. And there's much more emphasis on listening and understanding and then making sense of what's being said and then putting it on the page. So I think listening is a real key. That would be number one. I would say it's it's important with sketch noting that you know you that you do it yourself. Like um, I think it needs to be hand drawn and handwritten, whether that's on an iPad or a Surface Pro or a piece of paper with a pen. I think if you're simply doing typing in uh, in a Word document and moving it around with images, that's certainly not sketch noting. You're just doing a visualization, which is still valuable, but it wouldn't be considered sketch noting. And I think um, fo- uh, trying to take ideas and compress them into a simple communication is also another principle. So that's taking lots of information and then sort of boiling it down to some degree and capturing it in a concise way. So what might be an hour long talk could be fit on a page, right? So maybe each each 15 minutes is about a quarter of the page, let's say. And I think the beauty there is because of the compression, because of the simplification, like all the words are sort of brought down to the concepts or the principles of what's being said or what you're absorbing in a way that it's easy for you to look at that page in a single shot and sort of work your way through the through the talk that you were just part of or the experience that you had and be able to see the process. And I think there's real value in getting what you're thinking on paper because then you can step away from it and look at it a little bit more objectively. And I would say that the other benefit there is you can have sort of a real understanding with others. So if you do this in a group setting, once you put it on paper, others can look at it and say, that's, I don't, I I didn't hear that at all. I heard this, right? So it's, it provides sort of a neutral capture of information that you can either agree or have a discussion about uh, that. I think you can have an illusion of agreement where a group of people will say something about a topic and they'll have the idea in their, each of their heads but the the idea in each of their heads is not exactly the same. So I think sometimes putting it on a whiteboard or you know putting it on a page can provide that. So that would be that's a really key principle is you know the idea of having an external place to put your thinking is really key. 
you know, love the fact that it kind of builds on an individual experience. So what Kiran might hear, listen to, and then draw could be very different to me, but essentially it's, we're taking what we want from that. Mm-hmm. Mike, love to dip into, you know, you've had this journey to date, you've published some work, you have a lovely online presence with your workshops and so forth. Was there anyone that influenced you or kind of set you off in this trajectory? I mean, personally, when I was 15, I wanted to be a cartoonist, actually. Mm-hmm. And I, lo- I loved Gary Larson and The Far Side. I mean, mm-hmm. he was, for me, he was the man. So who kind of started you off or maybe influenced you at an early age? Well, I think, you know, I, I can probably cite all kinds of people along the path. I would say my mother, actually, when I was young, she was really encouraging me to draw. Like, I think one of the benefits that I've had in my life is that where other kids um, would draw in school and sort of have been scolded by teachers, I suppose I probably was. I don't seem to remember that as being like a, a moment where I stopped drawing. I just kept drawing through my whole life. And I think a big key to that was my mother being some very supportive of my drawing and visualization. I made comic books when I was a kid and you know, I, had, I practiced all these uh, approaches. So I think that was really key. Um, I think later in life, uh, when I really formed sketchnoting, someone I would give lots of credit to is a guy named Dave Gray. He has some excellent books in the space of visual thinking and also in business. He invited people to come to an event in Chicago. And I remember at the time, I think it was $300 at the time. And I thought, wow, this is a lot of money, but I think it's really valuable. I think Dave's really got something unique. And so I, I bought a ticket and I took the train down and and it was a a day workshop and it was just so transformative really when i look back at that one event spending that that day with dave and the team really sort of shaped the direction that my life would take when i look backwards and he continues to be a leader in the space uh, and encourages me has become a friend and really is encouraging me and likes the work that i'm doing and so he would be a huge influence in the work that i'm doing as well great work and i think Having that influence was very important. And a lot of the time drawing when you get older has a stigma attached to it, um, almost that we should only do it when we're kids. So right. yeah, I love the fact that note-taking can be something that formalizes it a bit more. When you mentioned that on the conferences, I was thinking back to the ones I've attended over the last year and I've taken notes and I've, I have notebooks full of information, but I never go back over them and I continuously do it. Mike, he takes loads, <laughs> loads of notes, right? <laughs> a4 pad. I never go back over them and I've started looking into your stuff and I've taken some images and I do tend to do that more. I'm wondering about your process of reflection and after you take notes or you provide information for companies, what do you encourage people to do to reflect on them or what is the process you do yourself? That's a really interesting question and I don't know that I have a specific process that I follow after the fact, although I do go back through my work periodically, you know, every month or so uh, looking back. I think it can be helpful to have a place where you store and you share, whether that's privately or publicly. So you don't have, I would say one of the misnomers around sketchnoting that you might see if you dip your toe into the internet is lots of people are sharing their sketchnotes, which is great. I think it can be useful because it provides other people a a window into the way you think and the way you absorb and the information that you're interested in, right? But if you feel uncomfortable, let's say you're one of those people that just hasn't drawn since they were a kid, and they're just getting started, maybe for you drawing or the, the ability to draw is a, you would see as a disadvantage or it shows, you know, I'm just not ready to do that yet. You could certainly have somewhere where you store that information in a digital diary or even just opening, if you do it in a book, opening the book and flipping through it again. As I understand, there's lots of real value 
when you take notes and you understand things to go back over those notes and study them a little bit. It sort of reinforces the concepts. So I think a regular a regular practice of looking back through is important at whatever frequency makes sense, maybe weekly, maybe monthly. Sometimes I'll pull old books off the shelf and I'll just look through and remember. And it's amazing, actually, when I look at those sketch notes, how much I still remember from that moment. You would think that, you know, two years on, you wouldn't remember, oh, I was having, a, I had really good coffee before that event. I couldn't believe the coffee maker they had or, you know, and then I, I met such and so, right? Like stuff starts coming back by reliving these notes, which is really fascinating uh, thing about our memories. And I think it can be really valuable to go back regularly and have a practice of just looking back through, you know, that might mean having some place where you capture that, where it makes it easy. I think reducing the friction is certainly a part of it, right? Where it's not difficult to do if it's a pain to kind of reach up to the top shelf and get your notebooks down, or you have to dig through digital files to find things, you're not going to be encouraged to review your sketch notes later on. So I think having something that makes it a little bit less frictionful would be helpful and useful. And I think there's real value in, in this reflection time. And Mike, without going into the details as to maybe who, who you worked with or for or what it was all about, just dipping into that memory bank, would love to hear maybe a story, a, you know, a short favorite piece of work, maybe, or something that resonates to this day. And it could be for whatever reason, it could be about the sketch note you took, it could be about the lettering technique you used, it could be the coffee, just so we can nearly paint a picture and be there with you for a minute. Sure, sure. I've got a great story for you. So for about three years, I worked in financial services uh, as a contractor, as a designer. And I worked with a team that was building software for financial services uh, representatives. And what it did was uh, it was in the insurance space and it would it basically calculated insurance values for the salesperson so they could give a quote to the customer, right? So pretty straightforward. There was existing software. We were redesigning it as a web-based application. I was uh, with three or four teams that would do that work. And as the designer, I was really the only designer on this team. So I had to find a way that I could reduce my bottleneck to the team. And so what we established was something we called Whiteboard Mondays. We had a huge whiteboard in our space. And I would go to the whiteboard. I had a business analyst who I worked with. And we would queue up the features that we were designing in this web-based version of the old Windows application. And the developers and the product owners and the other business analysts would sit around the table. We would do it as a group. We would queue up the feature and say, okay, here's what the feature is. Here's what it needs to do. Here's what the old app used to do. Let's talk about what we can do with that, right? And as people would start to talk, I had whiteboard markers and I would draw the things that they were talking about. So I would draw the interface and how it was acting. And usually I would draw you know, the interface itself and let's say black ink. And then I would have an annotated color, like say red, and I would do this drawing. So I was just doing really sketch noting of feature development by these software developers and product owners and such. And I remember there was this moment where there was a new developer who had just joined the team. He hadn't been on these sessions before. And I'm drawing something that he was talking about. And obviously, he couldn't see it because I was standing in front of it drawing. So I stepped to the side. And uh, this guy says, how are you reading my mind? He was, <laughs> he was really shocked that I was capturing exactly what he was talking about on the board. It was like exactly what, his, what was in his head. And I just remember he, he had this smile on his face. And I think there's a few things that I remember specifically from that moment was, uh, number one, he felt heard. I think it was really important because so often in these kind of situations, developers especially are told, 
you know, what they're supposed to do. And maybe they're, they're just an, you know, just a, a grunt that does the, the coding work. Right. So it was important that he was heard, that he was understood. There's a little bit of joy that he saw. Wow. This is really cool. I see this idea forming on the board. All I have to do is speak it and it becomes real. Like there was a real fascination with that, that I really enjoyed bringing. And I think the last thing was it encouraged them that the combination of those two things encouraged a third thing, which was very often these developers felt really comfortable just coming right up to the board and grabbing the marker from me and then drawing their thinking, right? So it became the culture that we would work together, that we would get on this board. Maybe I would do most of the drawing, but they always had the capability to come up. And it really opened up this really interesting space for a team to work together. So often you would go look at those features after they'd been developed and you'd say, who came up with that idea? And maybe you might remember someone who sparked it. But really, if you looked at it, it was a whole team that worked together to kind of shape it and move it and challenge it until it got built into its final form. So that was a real a real memorable experience for me was the the fun of doing it, the physicality, but also the the happy realization by this developer that he was being listened to and his ideas were coming to life and that we, you know, we had real things to discuss on the board. It wasn't just two developers with something in their head. It was actually real. It had a physicality to it that I think uh, was visceral for them that helped them truly understand what they were doing. And I think it really sparked new ideas that they may not have had if they worked separately. Love the collaborative energy of that, Mike. Thanks for sharing that story. That's right, Mike. I I think we've mentioned maybe each one of us individually during this conversation that there's a lot of information being shared at the moment. There's a lot of podcasts, a lot of webinars and things that are being provided to people to help them through this difficult time. It's more than relevant than ever that we try and capture and retain that information. And we use the reflection piece that we mentioned. If someone was really interested, where would you point them to start? Where would they look for the five basic elements of drawing? Would they look at your workshops on YouTube, social media? Where would you point them to? Yeah, I would say a really good place to start and it's free is uh, on YouTube. I have a free session. We can give you a link for the show notes where I really cover this concept in the Sketchnote mini workshop, 30, 32 minutes, I think it is, something like that. Basically goes through who I am. It sort of shows you samples. It describes what Sketchnotes are. And it goes through this five basic shapes and drawing people and other, other basics to get you started. And it's all free. That's how it'd be a really great place to start from there if you're interested in picking up my book, that's available as well. And that gives you a little bit more information. And then beyond that, um, I teach pretty regularly, publicly. I like to do events. And so probably a good place to go would be on social media. I am uh, road design all over the place. So there's all kinds of resources. If you if you look me up, you'll probably stumble over all kinds of samples of either recorded events where I did presentations or events that are coming up that I'm, that I'm mentioning. And I'm more than happy to, to chat with people. So if you want to reach out you certainly can reach out and chat with me. Mike, do you have any kind of personal piece of advice or tactical plans for people who, you know, when you're writing, we have writer's block, right? We've Mm -hmm. heard of writer's block. It's established and everyone struggles with it at some point in time. What about even something that you're obviously trying to make a little bit more simple and a little bit less scary? Do you have a sort of process maybe you use yourself for, for people when they're on the whiteboard and they're trying to capture that information, but it's not quite happening for them. Is there any advice or suggestions to give to those people? It's good to have a sense of humor. So a lot of times what I'll say is when I teach the five basic elements of drawing to people, one of the underlying concepts that I like to say is it's 
turn it into a game. My grandfather was really good at doing this. Like if he had to do the most boring thing, like washing the dishes, he would make it into a game. How, how fast can I, can I wash the, wash the cups and get them on the, on the counter? Or how fast can I change the wheel and put the new one on, right? He'd be timing himself. So even in the most silly mundane things, he would put a little element of game, which I guess, you know, now we look at the gamification of all kinds of things. So that's something we realize that humans in general like to do. So if you can make a little bit of a game out of it, uh, and one of the games I like to teach around this drawing approach is how few elements of the five basic elements can I use to express the idea, right? So if you're drawing, let's say a book, right? A book can be a rectangle with a line down the middle. That would be sort of your minimum. And I think it's important too, that if you set these minimums where you can draw as few lines as possible to communicate the idea, you feel a level of success. Like, hey, I did it. It look kind of looks like a book, right? And the word book around it or something reinforces what it is. So it doesn't have to be an awesome drawing. But then once you achieve that minimum, then you can start to add some details. And I would, I would say as much as you can make it sort of a fun game-like experience, I think takes the pressure off of being the expert and drawing perfectly. I would say the other thing would be practice this in a low stakes environment. So probably not a good idea to practice your new drawing skills in front of the CEO where you have all this pressure and and so forth on you, right? It would be better to have a few colleagues and do it privately and practice it and really hone what you're doing so that by the time you're ready to reveal that to a broader audience or a more important you know, audience from a decision-making perspective, that you have a confidence level built up, that you don't put yourself in bad situations where you have a high likelihood of failure, or even if you didn't fail, you know, you would feel the pressure, right? Undue pressure when you could be doing this practice before. So I think those are a couple of things uh, to prepare yourself. But I think, you know, having a, a mindset of joy and, and humor and fun, I think really can help groups, especially in, in this time, right? Where we're often working remotely and we have to make do with what we have, I think it's really important that we become creative and that we have a little fun with it, right? Look, we can't change the situation. We have to find a creative way to do it. And why couldn't we have fun at the same time? That just makes everything much more fun. Mike, in your work, you also do some illustrations for books. Mm -hmm. Um, One book we came across that influenced us in our business was the $100 Startup. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your experiences of taking the concepts from these books and transforming them visually or capturing them for an audience and working with the authors? Well, that's one of the things that I enjoy quite a bit. And I'm, I've had the fortune of working with quite a few great books doing illustration work. And I think the thing that I really enjoy about that work is usually it's a single author or maybe a pair of authors in the case of uh, Rework and Remote with Jason Fried and David Hansen, being able to really get access to those thinkers. I usually get their manuscript and I work through it and I bounce back ideas to them, right? But there's kind of a back and forth. And I think it's also going back to the last point I made were fun, right? It seems unusual that in a business book, you would have illustrations, which have a little bit of uh, tongue in cheek, right? Or having a little fun with the imagery. But I think that those funny metaphors really capture your attention in a way that simply reading the text doesn't. And I think the other thing I would say around doing this illustration work, is I really feel like a collaborative partner with the authors. Now, of course, they generate the ideas and I'm illustrating them. But I always felt like the work that I would do with illustration work was amplifying the words of the author and making it clear 
and it would sort of work hand in hand, right? So if someone was flipping through the book again after they'd read it, if they would see my illustration on the front page or somewhere in the body, it would remind them of the text that was written. So they really worked in a partnership. It wasn't really just images and then text. It was really this idea that they worked together in, as a unit, that they would both, that the sum of the two would be more than the parts and they would become sort of a unit in communicating those ideas, both verbally and visually to someone, depending on how they approach things, they could access it either way and it would have meaning for them. Curious as to when we, when we talk to, to people on this podcast, we're often saying, you know, feeding into high performance, kind of what's the next big thing for you? What's, what's next coming on the horizon? And something that's jumped out to us recently in recent interviews, we hear the words innovation and creativity and having to stay ahead of the curve and, and all these things. Bearing all that in mind and the fact that you nearly try to keep things somewhat simple and fundamental to get the big idea, which in essence is really powerful. Where do you see your work evolving over the next couple of years, or does it actually need to? I would say a lot of what I'm doing now is uh, adapting to the environment that I'm in. So at the time, I wrote a book because that was made the most sense. And we actually shot videos with the book. So uh, we did some video teaching. What I'm finding is that there's, there's a unique and interesting aspect to live events that lend themselves to more impact, I think. So as opposed to something that's recorded, I think the recorded events have value, but there's something about a live event that it's happening right now that inputs that are I'm receiving from often the, the attendees is being addressed and, and uh, adapted to, right? So I think the aspect of doing things live is really interesting because it, it provides an, another level of depth to it. I think the other thing that I'm seeing in the work that I'm doing is applying it in business. So by day, I work as a designer, principal designer and visualizer inside a large multinational corporation. Uh, and I, there's so much information that needs to be communicated simply, right? There's, <laughs> there's an endless supply of subjects for me to sketch note to communicate ideas inside the company. And I've found that the work that I do really resonates inside the company because so often as a designer and in a very technical space, taking these really complex topics and communicating them simply and succinctly is really difficult to do. And there's not there's people that are trying to do it, but they often get stuck in the technical details, right? You need someone almost like me from coming from the outside that can capture it in its essence and show it in a little bit different way. So I think that's, um, that's a really interesting space, being there and being able to take this highly technical information, understand it, and then communicate it in a simple way. A lot of times executives may not have the technical detail, right? But they need to understand the concept. So it can really help leadership understand sort of the things that are being done by the technical people in a way that maybe they wouldn't have the depth to. And it provides sort of a, a, a gap, a fill in the gap between their understanding and the technical understanding. And I think that I find that really fascinating and fun. And I think it leads to innovation because as you get better communication, new ideas could form from, from that discussion. And Mike, I think there's a lot we could take from that because, you know, we're physios, you know, sports medicine and physiotherapy. Mm -hmm. And in our space, we'd attend conferences and, and summits and the like, and they're always very detailed and oftentimes long and oftentimes complicated. And uh, trying to capture the story, try to best get the communication across sometimes is hard, especially when you get to that kind of level of detail in, in science sometimes. So I really think anyone listening in that sort of space, multi 
multidisciplinary healthcare should get a lot of value and maybe look into doing sketch notes because as Kiran had said earlier, when we're attending a conference, you end up just writing loads or you're waiting for it to be sent across because there's so much information usually coming across. So I think being able to get it across simpler and, and perhaps using the essence of your kind of work could be a huge advantage. Um, so just wanted to put that out there for a couple of our friends listening to this one. So cheers to that, Mike. Yeah, not a, not a problem. I'm, I'm very excited. I've just sort of, uh, the reason we've met is I've started stepping into this space. And I find it really fascinating. You know, it's got a lot of the same challenges that other spaces have, but it has some unique aspects too. And I think I'm really excited to see as people in the sports medicine space work with this idea, is there a space where you can take the technical detail that you understand about the physical things that a player, let's say, maybe the way they're doing a kick or there's some aspect of their play that you see, right? And you can tell them and tell them and tell them, but it's often hard to communicate. You need to show them, right? Is there a way that you can show them and capture it in a sketch note? And then after that session, they take that sketch note along with them. And then that becomes the thing that reminds them of the experience, right? So it can fit in in interesting places where it can not only communicate the idea from the coach's perspective, but then live on as a player as a player reference, right, that they can use, or maybe the actual players are are learning how to do this. So they they themselves can interpret it in a way that makes sense to them. So that when they look back and reflect on it, it can be part of their visualization technique to hit the ball properly or what what have you, right? Whatever the whatever that topic is becomes now much more integrated into themselves because of the way that it was presented. I love that too. And that's something that I hadn't even thought about for a performance department Sometimes a huge challenge is when a sports science team or the sports medicine performance department is trying to communicate with a player and with the front office, maybe the, the general management, as an example, that this is what needs to be done from a player management perspective or from a health and player support perspective. But your your way of actually communicating that could be a lot easier to convey that. And you probably make the communication so much easier for everyone to understand the key principles and bring some alignment to it. So I think anyone, again, from that space listening, takes some value because there's a lot that can be said for, for those sort of settings. Yeah, I think you'd probably see it in sports psychology where you link an idea or a motivation to an image and put on wrist tape or you put it, you know, hanging up in the facility. But that's we hadn't really considered that as much about our information provision to players. I think this leads nicely onto the final question of the show, Mike. And we wanted to ask you, being an author, being a high-quality designer, what does high performance mean to you? I place lots of emphasis on consistency. I think it can be great to be high performance for a short amount of time, but if you can't maintain that level of of effort over a period of time, I think it, it doesn't serve you well, right? So one of the challenges I face is on a big project, let's say, you can have lots of fire and you know excitement at the beginning of the project, right? But when you're three, four months into it, and it's really boring, but you still have to hold that level of uh, excitement and understand the end point, which is three months from now, is really key. And I have to hold that goal in my mind and maintain my consistency level every day to reach it, right? Um, I would even say it in the context of writing books. So I have lots of experience here. So writing books usually have a deadline at the end of them. You can't avoid it. And you have to make progress, but it's not something you can do. You can't just pull an all-nighter or go for a weekend and finish a book. I suppose you could, but 
in my case, you know, I not only did I write the book, but I illustrated the book and then did the production design on the book. So I did I had everything from beginning to end. And it was a nine month process. So it wasn't something I could just, you know, just shoot out there, right? So I really had to every day say, I'm gonna do my best, I'm gonna deliver the best that I can, and then it has to be good enough because I only have a day to do it. And then tomorrow I have to get up and give the same level of effort. Maybe I don't always deliver the same level of deliverable. Maybe it's a little bit less, but I have to be okay with it. Knowing that this is a nine month long thing and I have to have the consistency to every day attack it and provide the same level of um, skill. Even if I'm not into it, right? I still have to fulfill that part of it. So I think that consistency, thats the those are the people I admire in sports are the ones who just consistently always deliver in the clutch that every day they're they're focusing and it's probably I would say a lot of what you know what you see in sports is the output of hours and hours and hours of practice and training and uh, fighting to deliver that final output right and you don't see most of it you just see the the glory part of it but there was lots and lots of work that went into it in the dark you know early in the morning late at night and I think it's the same thing with other people's work too you often you pop up and you see like the the joyful part when they succeed or when they deliver, but you don't see the nine months before where every night you were you were just cranking all the way till midnight delivering and being consistent because you know if you miss that day, it's going to make tomorrow harder and you have to keep on going. And just maintaining that level of consistency is so key. Mike, we'd like to say thank you very much for sharing your story, uh, sharing your lessons on Sketchnotes and how we can all start on that journey stay safe, stay well, please stay in touch. Um, you have two friends here over in Ireland anytime you've managed to get across the pond. So thank you very much for your time again. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks, David and Kieran. It's been a real, real joy to be here with you guys and to share and to have a discussion. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.